Welcome to Camera Occulta, where we talk about the film representations of the occult. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. This one's actually really good, especially considering the context of the time. We are watching Season of the Witch by George Romero. It was filmed here in Pittsburgh, and man, it is a beautiful piece of exploitation era filmography. I'm joined today with Luke, the guy too good for the Criterion Collection. How you doing, Luke? Pretty good. Pretty good. Okay, where are we starting? Uh, we are starting with Season of the Witch from 1973, George Romero film. This is his third movie after, of course, Night of the Living Dead and The Crazies. The Crazies is a pretty awesome movie. Yeah, I never actually got into it. You missed out. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, this is one he wanted to do after that film. He had done some work with the local PBS affiliate here in Pittsburgh, which, if you're familiar, is also the home of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So... A lot going on with this PBS affiliate. He'd done a, a special on witchcraft with them, not one that he did himself. He just worked on it as part of the crew. But he became interested in witchcraft and he wanted to make a film about it. And also he uh, worked on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of stuff with the local uh, PBS. What is it called? Uh, I forget. Never mind. Yeah, W call letters. W call yeah, letters. Yeah, just a thousand stations who can keep track. So uh, tell us about the background of this one. This one, it's it's kind of tragic, actually. Uh, I'll start by saying, when asked about this many years later, George Romero would say that this is the only film he's done that he would like to remake. And it hasn't been remade. This is one of the few movies of his that hasn't gotten a do-over in the 90s. Now, I, he had actually had a lot of trouble trying to get it out in the first place. With this film, when he first proposed it, he was able to secure funding for it. And he was given a quarter million dollars to film it. This is 1973. Uh, he was given a quarter million dollars to film it. Uh, by contrast, the the budget for Night of the Living Dead was $114,000, just like four years earlier. But when filming actually started, his budget got slashed to $100,000. So less than the cost of Night of the Living Dead. And this is at a time when the cost of buying and editing film was very high. So that's where a lot of the budget would go. More than more, probably as much as the cost of production was just editing film. Uh, so he he what he last minute the budget got cut. So very last minute he had to change a lot of plans. And George Romero himself actually ended up doing a lot of the work on this film. He obviously had a production crew. There were people there with lights, people there with cameras, people there with, with microphones and whatnot. Uh, but at the end of the day, when it came to all the post production work, George Romero was the one doing a lot of the post production just because. There was no one else. There was no budget to hire anybody. That's kind of amazing because his entire crew, this is a, this is a film city. Uh, people don't realize that there is a lot of um, creative efforts that come out of what is here in this area, Pittsburgh. And uh, we have one of the biggest PBS stations. We also have all kinds of different environments in which to jump around in to do different filming techniques, kind of like California, but greener. This is true. And despite the uh, presence of the film community here, uh, filmmakers, they have to eat, too. Yep. So if you can't pay them, they can't work for you. And this is this was sadly one of those cases and they where he didn't get to make the entire story. Some of the reviews I read said that the editing was kind of jarring and janky and that actually took away from the film. Well, it's because they were working with what they had. They couldn't go back for reshoots. Uh, if they didn't have a great take, the theatrical cut and the cut you can find today are very different. You can get a lot of scenes in the film today that you could not get in the, in the theatrical cut that are just, they add to the story. But you can tell they're obviously not the best take. But again, they couldn't go back to reshoots. So yeah, it's it's sad. And let's be clear before we get too much further in. This is 1973's Season of the Witch by George Romero. Not to be confused with 2011 Season of the Witch with Nicolas Cage, or the 2009 film Season of the Witch, or the 2022 documentary Season of the Witch, or the 2011 finished film Season of the Witch. Do not confuse this with Halloween 3 Season of the Witch or the television series Season of the Witch. This is 1973's Season of the Witch by George Romero. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. Oh. 
And it's an, it's, it's an exploitation film, but the only thing that got exploited in this film was Donovan's season of the witch. Yeah, I guess you got to which you, you know, got to hook with what you got. Yeah. And, and regularly through the course of this film, Donovan's season of the witch will creep up on you. And it seems to be basically the entire soundtrack, except for a few, uh, you know, organ solos. They're trying to make it seem a little churchy. Oh, we didn't even talk about what the hell this film was even about. We just got into production. Well, tell them what it's about. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Season of the Witch is... <sighs> I guess it's important to talk about, actually, the trouble they had with... We can't, we can't talk about it yet until we talk about the trouble they had trying to get this movie published because no one wanted to touch it. It went under the working title Jack's Wife because Romero wanted to hide the fact that he was making a cult film. I suppose. Uh, and when you watch it, the title screen actually says Jack's wife. Uh, and it's about a woman named Joan who was married to a guy named Jack. They had, the trouble they had publishing this was because no one wanted to touch it. No one wanted to publish it. So even after he had the movie made, no one wanted to like have copies made and have it distributed to theaters because no one wanted to pay for it. So they tried to get Romero to rebrand it as a porno. That wasn't his thing. No, that wasn't his thing. And no one in the film wanted to make a porno. So that was part of the trouble you had. So it got rebranded. It got, sorry, excuse me, retitled and released as Hungry Wives. And so that was, that was what, it, yeah, and then the trailer itself is comedy gold in that regard, uh, where the, uh, the, it makes the wives sound like, like the desperate, lustful women who are about to, you know, chew off a man's penis at any moment well you know to empower their 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 blood there is a subtext (laughs) in it that she is missing out on something and it's slightly sexual but you have to pay very close attention to catch it i actually have that trailer here let's go ahead and play with that hungry wives my evening is free on a diet of men you know you're not bad in the sack mrs robinson I bad yourself. Everything women could want out of marriage, except the one thing they crave most. Joan, available. Shirley, dissolving her problems in drink. Marion, dabbling in... So yeah, you get the idea here. It just goes, it just lists all the women in the movie and tries to make it sound like they're all like desperate and horny and completely... uh, neglected which well, they were they kind of are but that's <laughs> yeah. not the point of the movie you know it was the <laughs> 70s we're coming hot off the heels of an era where you know men stayed at work all the time and women had way too much free time but it wasn't a high employment era for women so yeah you got to sit around the house a little bit so, that's funny you mentioned that, like the post-World War II boom of in you know, the, the society reorganizing into suburban life where guys went to work, they made plenty of money and women stayed at home and took care, care of the family. Uh, that didn't last very long. It didn't last as long as people think it did. And this by this time, 1973, people were already banging on the door trying to get the hell out of the house. They got that taste of financial freedom <laughs> during World War II. And they're like, I don't know if housewife is for me. Yeah, right. Uh, so uh, Romero went with it and he tried and he let them release that trailer and he let them brand it, you know, call it Hungry Wives. And that's what it was titled. That's what it was released as originally. Uh, we don't know what the box office take on this was because it was released more than once because of this publication trouble. Uh, you know, it re- eventually got re-released as Season of the Witch, but he couldn't go back and make editing changes. So it still had the title Jack's Wife and the opening credits on it. <laughs> That's a very Pittsburgh kind of situation, That's actually. Yeah, I mean, it was filmed here, too. It was filmed in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. So if you ever wanted to find out what Pittsburgh looked like in the 1970s, you can watch this film. Also, if you want to know what the North Hills of Pittsburgh look like even today, you can watch this film. It looks exactly the same. Yeah, the Asali uh, banner is still up <laughs> and it is it hasn't been repainted. It is the same sign that it was in this movie. So this film is about a woman named Joan, and this she's the main character. There are other wives in the film. Uh, hungry they may be. I'm not really sure. They didn't go into that in great detail. Uh, but Joan is a housewife uh, in her mid to late 30s who is hanging out with other housewives who are also just bored. They're playing Pinochle and, and Canasta and whatnot and like doing house party stuff. And Joan is unsatisfied. Her husband is away all the time. When he is home, all he does is 
bitch and moan and be like just a sourpuss dick. They have a daughter who's around college age. They're not, they're very unclear about that. They're, they're, they're actually alarmingly unclear about how old their daughter is in this film. Uh, but it's not important to the story, I guess, but like watching it now, it feels a little weird and creepy. Like this is a, obviously a, a grown woman playing the daughter in the film, but you're not sure if this is like a teenager or what. And like later on that plays a part in what's going on. But anyway, uh, Joan, um, feeling, uh, feeling, uh, unsatisfied, unfulfilled in her life, uh, being in like, it's the film opens with the dream sequence in which all of this is actually laid out for you in subtle, not so subtle ways. And like a dream where she's walking through the woods with her husband, she follows behind him. Uh, she's more like a tag along. He has no regard for her. She's trying to slap her way through branches and tree branches. And he's not holding them out of the way for her. He's not helping her at all. She's just trying to keep up with him and following where he goes. He locks her into a kennel. And then he appears as a real estate agent who drops her into a home. And it's a really nice home. He shows her around and he says, okay, it's all yours. And walks out the door. So here's a stack of checkbooks. Make sure the bills get paid and slams the door and walks away. It's actually very clever and fun. Um, but Joan becomes interested in witchcraft through a friend of hers who knows an actual witch. And Joan is a little, a little skeptical. She's Catholic. Let's, let's talk about how she gets to that point. They're invited to what looks like might end up a key party. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the, um, the housewives, not the housewives, the women are all clustered around and they're talking serious talk and their husbands are bouncing around in very drunken fashion of that youthfulness where they want to play games. But the women are actually being pretty serious about their conversation and the men are not noticing this at all. And this is actually the only time in the film you see her husband, Jack, smile and laugh and have a good time and be a uh, an outgoing fun person. Yeah. He's yeah, not, he's, he he's under it too. Yeah, he's not to her at home, but only in the social setting uh, with his workmates. But yes, there was discussion uh, about this witch, this woman who is a witch in the neighborhood. She's not at the party, but she gets curious about it. And her and Shirley are like, we're going to do this. We want to see a witch. Shirley is also a little bit older than her. Uh, and that's made clear in the movie. And um, she's either an empty nester or in a very hard situation. She's her. Their husbands are friends, but she doesn't have a relationship with her husband. Uh, That's made clear. Um, So she's the one initiating all of this. And Joan's just kind of like, yeah, let's just do it. I'm bored. Let's go see a witch. Uh, And they do. Uh, After a few days. Uh, and it's, it's hard to follow the, what's going on with her husband and his schedule, which is kind of the point or he's coming and going constantly and he's gone for days at a time when he does go and she, Joan gets bored. She, they go to this witch's house and the witch pulls out a really nice tarot deck. That was a legit tarot deck for once in one of these movies. That was a real tarot deck from the seventies. It would have been one that you would have gotten either through the mail order catalogs or very rarely you will find kind of subtle occult stores at the time. There weren't very common. It is implied that one existed in Pittsburgh at that time. And I'm pretty sure that's the co-op next to the Home Depot. <laughs> this, this witch goes on to give Joan, who's uh, curious but standoffish, uh, a very good explanation of what witchcraft is. Sorry, I know I must sound no, no, That's all right. It's a religion, really. My uh, mother was a witch. Um, my father belonged. So it was really quite simple for me. And of course, in today's age, with anything goes, a lot of people are beginning to take it seriously. I honestly think that everyone underneath their prejudices knows that there's something out there that we haven't got the power to define. Everyone who's ever had a clairvoyant experience or a poltergeist at work or had a prophetic dream. Uh, Joan didn't know anything more about it than just, I guess, what she'd been told. Like, you know, we're not really sure how devout she is as a Catholic. 
but we know that she's scared. She's very clear about that. And the, and the witch they're talking to is like, well, I wish everybody was. I wish everybody came here with the same kind of pensive curiosity to learn about this without taking a big bite that they can't chew. They also represent the witch as a very normal person, as if you went to an actual witch in real life. This woman reminds me of the, um, oh, what do we call them? New Agers that I grew up around. Yeah, she looks like every single person I have called aunt in my life. <laughs> She's very reasonable. Everyone in this movie looks like somebody's aunt in real life. Uh, and they're all about probably 22 years old. It's the 1970s. They all had bad skin. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's, they're all over 40. They're all all these women are over 40 were, in this film. They really are. And, and, and Joan's actually not an unattractive woman herself. And so it's it was part of the tragedy of her being at home alone who, with a husband who was not responsive to her needs. They, they show that in the film where she's just trying to get close to her husband and he just wants to snooze. The terror reading goes and Joan walks away with a real, a different feeling about it, I guess. Genuine curiosity goes into, hey, this is something that I want to get into, where nothing's happening in her life at all. And uh, what we see happen in the film very slowly is that Joan gets into witchcraft step by step. It doesn't just like it's not like a like a like a like a montage where it just cuts and all of a sudden she's just like she's lighting black candles. She goes into it very slowly. She works her way into it. She learns about it a little bit by bit and she starts to use it as something that can make things happen in her life to take some control over her life. And they do it very well. Also, uh, she walks away from this meeting with a book in her hand and it's not clear if she was given the book. Oh, yeah, you're right. She has the book. It was the witch's book. And she goes home with it. And it's not, it, I don't recall a scene, any part of the scene that's like, yeah, sure, take one of my books. But she takes one of the books. And it's not a real book. So don't go hunting for this one. <laughs> I already tried. The cover's rad. It has an onk on it and hot pink or red. Can't tell because of Technicolor. But this book does not exist. And it was probably made with magic markers. So I've seen a lot of people go through this transition where they're just getting into this community and they're stepping in and they're they're curious they want to learn and i see a real a very realistic parallel between between like what i've experienced with this group and what joan is going through in the film they it's it's eerie um just how accurate it is for a person to start stepping into it and learning about it and going into it with the caution necessary uh, while also seeking out a mentor of some type and doing their own research and uh, acquiring the tools. Like for some people, like there's a real, there's a real thrill in getting the gear you need to start a project. (laughs) (laughs) Stay out of my office. (laughs) Well, this is everybody. Uh, and this movie is no different where, you know, eventually Joan will go on a shopping trip to downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, I guess, I guess the beating heart of witchcraft, but there's certainly a beating heart of great thrift stores at some time, at some places. Uh, and she ends up in a basement thrift store and she's walking through this amazing shop that I'd love to visit. Uh, and she's picking up the tools of the trade. And I, when I saw this, I, I laughed because, uh, yeah, I, to me it was comical. Like she's walking up to the counter you know, there's certain things you don't buy in combination because it's obvious what your what your night's going to be like, right? I mean, you don't you don't go to the you don't go to the grocery store and buy like a bag of carrots and a tub of Vaseline because they're going to they're going to know what you're up to. Likewise, Joan walks out of the counter and just drops off this massive pile of like a witch kit, you know, chalice, dagger, you know, incense burners, like little cold, you know, little pots to to work out of. It, it's it's obvious what's happening here. It's it's comically obvious what's happening here, um, and I thought it was fun. And the really fun part about this is that the clerk behind the counter said something about it. It's like, oh, you're interested in witchcraft. <laughs> and, like, and, and she seems surprised. And he's like, well, I mean, you got all the tools of the trade here. And he wasn't wrong. She actually did. And it wasn't something he was into. Uh, so it wasn't like she made a contact there. But it's, it's, you know, it's clear. And this is the first time we see her actually pop up and say, yeah, I'm a witch. And the guy's like, cool, cool. And then gives her the total. Uh, and so you, that's when she just finally just has the courage to step out and jump into it, I guess. Do you know how many times I've been at the junk shop 
with exactly that combination of stuff. And nobody said anything. Nobody even noticed. They're like, get your shit and get out. They know. <laughs> they know. That's how they got the job with the junk shop. So while this is occurring, there's also the subtext of her daughter is going off to college or just is about to complete high school and go off to college. She's about to lose her one family member that she has a strong relationship with. And she brings home this young man who might be a grad student. I'm guessing because he's a cocky little shit. He's a grad student. They just call him a student teacher, student teacher. So he's a, he's probably a grad student because back then undergrads couldn't teach. Okay. So yeah, so he's got, he's a grad student at least. Um, if not, I guess, post-grad stepping into faculty. We're not really sure how the, you know, how that made up university in the film would want to organize this. Either way, he's, he's her senior. Yeah. In some regard. He is definitely over 21 Mm -hmm. and the daughter is right at the end of high school. We, 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 yes. Yeah. Maybe a freshman in college, maybe a senior in high school. We don't know, but she's old enough to, she's old enough to make her own decisions. And bring a bring a grad student home. So that's why I think it's implied that she is going to college, but has not chosen a college yet. Okay, all right. Yeah. That actor, by the way, who played the grad student, he was in the Crazies. I'm gonna have to watch it again now. He, he worked with Romero on, on a previous film. So Romero's Romero's also one of those directors who just calls people he knows to come back and do the next film. You know what that means? Ah, no, what are you doing? We can go knock on this guy's door. Oh, he's probably around here somewhere. He's probably sixty. Maybe. Oh, he's got to be. Yeah, because he's probably like 25, 28 in the film. Yeah. That was 1973. So, yeah, yeah, he's got some he's got some years on him. If he hasn't. If he hasn't died from the acid rain around here <laughs> at this time, the, the time the movie was being made, there was still like smokestacks belching black smoke into the air around Pittsburgh. Uh, one of the one of the critiques of this film in the critical reviews was that everything just felt dirty and dingy and used. Well, that's because of the low budget. He actually filmed it at people's houses. He filmed it in a thrift store. That's That was a legitimate thrift store. Yeah. It's credited at the very opening, such and such thrift. Well, again, they weren't using Hollywood sets. They filmed all this in people's homes. They filmed it in real houses. Yeah. So this grad student comes in. Uh, he's meeting this girl's mom. They're not actually, like, dating. They're just hanging out for fun. He meets, a girl, meets Joan. Shirley's there. Shirley's there. And Shirley is... Shirley's already like Shirley's already two sheets in the wind and working on the third and they're having a good time. They're all talking. And this grad student, it's he's very forceful in his manner, in his conversation, in, 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 in a way that's it's at first it looks like he's just taking charge of making sure the party's fun. Uh, after a while, you get to see that he's actually just a, a, a really overbearing dick. Yeah, he's a dick. He's a real jerk. Consent's not part of his vocabulary, not in the way that's horrific, but he doesn't really understand boundaries yet. And I guess that's part and parcel of the 70s. Uh, And yeah, it's clear that in his view, anybody who isn't going along with what he wants to do or wants them to do is uh, a stick in the butt, a square. Someone who someone who's not with it enough. And the the hilarious use of jargon here is. Is so forced and out of place, and in trying to make the guy seem like he's cool and with it, and uh, e- even at the, t- in the in the time this film came out, it's I, I get the feeling that this guy was an adult who's trying to speak urban to a kid. But he's also a sociology major or s- studier, uh, so he is carrying a lot of um, the sociology research that he's working on into this conversation. He's also carrying a joint in his pocket. Yeah, that he pulls out. Uh, Shirley's very curious about it. Like, get out of here! Is that really a joint? Like, and she, this woman's like in her mid forties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't tell me she's never seen a joint before, but apparently that's that that's her life. First time for everything. Yeah, uh, Shirley excuses herself to go to the bathroom to take what must be a wicked whiskey piss. Uh, during this time, when the, when they're when she's gone, this guy decides to uh, prank her, and he rolls up tobacco in one of his papers. And gives it to her and wants to give it to Shirley. And everyone else objects to trying to trick Shirley, make a fool of her. And then we see just how how far this guy is willing to push everything by when Shirley comes out, he you know, he gives her the joint and she smokes it and she starts to getting, you know, like, oh wow. Like you know, if you've ever done the oregano Frank, that's what's that's what's happening here, uh, where someone thinks they're getting high and they're really not at all. And yeah, he just totally chumps Shirley and everybody else is really uncomfortable with this. And but again, the guy's 
he's just a dick about about the whole thing. Now, his point during these conversations was that this is all psychological. And the counterpoint is, if this is all psychological, then both sides of the situation in magic or the occult have to know that that is happening. In order to affect someone else with magic, they have to know that you have done it to them. The counter rebuttal to that is, well, then there's no harm in me doing magic. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. It would be worth noting here that all through the film, there are many, many, many references back to Joan's um, exploration of witchcraft. There is the mention of prophetic dreams, the mention of spell casting and what have you. Uh, there's a lot of things that are explained earlier on in the film by the witch. And one of the themes that carries through in a very 12 monkeys way is a prophetic dream that Joan continues to have through the film. But we don't understand that it's prophetic. We see it as a nightmare she's having where a prowler is trying to break into her home. And this dream actually progresses. It's not the same dream every single time. It's the same thing. Um, but every time Joan gets a little further and further into dealing with the situation. At first, she just cowers under her blanket. After a while, she's having the dream and she's trying to lock the doors. She's trying to get a gun out of the closet further along. And like this dream is something that progresses. As Joan progresses into her exploration of this new thing, she and you see her get more and more of a grip on it, more and more of a grip on her life. Uh, you'll see the dream progress as well. And it's a great side-by-side -side parallel storytelling technique. In each one of the dreams, she takes control in a different way. In each one of the dreams, there's more and more control that she's getting her grip on. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the party ends. Everybody goes home. Joan says she's going to take her friend Shirley home. Shirley didn't want to go home alone because she was so drunk. She was afraid her husband was just going to yell at her. So Joan agreed to take her. She, Joan tells her daughter and uh, this guy who's, I, mean, I forget the name of the character. What is this guy's name? Dr. Dickhead. Dr. Dickhead. It's Greg. Greg. Her name is, is it Greg? Is Greg. Yes, I think yes. it's Greg. It's Greg. Yes, of course it's Greg. And Fucking so, Greg. Yeah. Greg, she, Joan is really mad at Greg and she tells him to get out of the house. Daughter goes with him. She takes her friend Shirley home, tells her daughter that she's going to uh, be gone probably all night at Shirley's house. Before she leaves, Greg comes back into the house. Joan says, I told you to get out of here. And Greg's, you know, Greg's trying, he's trying to tell her I came back to apologize. But he does it in like the worst possible way. He doesn't just say, I just came back to apologize. He just says like, you know, I left. But yeah, I came back. And he can, he's, he's trying to exercise control in a situation where he lost control. Yeah. Like it was taken from him by the person who owned the house. Uh, and you see that he's a person who is going to come back and try to exercise even more control over a situation, even even when trying to apologize. He just the guy is just misspoken in every possible way. In lieu of her husband always being gone, uh, in lieu of the fact that Joan comes home later and Greg is having sex with her daughter, and why not? Mom says she's going to be gone all night. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. In lieu of the fact that next morning, you know, like later on. Her daughter wakes up and finds that uh, Joan had come home and had heard them having sex and gets, I guess, mom heard me having sex embarrassed and runs away from home. Everything falls apart. The family goes to pieces. Joan, having only been screamed at by her husband for this whole thing, which is a weird scene in itself also, one with a bad edit because her costume changes in the middle of that. So you're not sure if it was a dream or what. Just yeah, they film it as if it was a dream sequence because it echoes the prior dream sequences. But we do learn later because her husband apologizes for slapping her that this actually happens. Yes. Uh, in spite of all that, Everything falling apart because of that night, because of Greg's appearance. In spite of all that, Joan decides to take control of her life by going to where Greg works at a university, meeting him for a one-on-one -on -one in a classroom, and not being able to find out where her daughter is because Greg doesn't know. Joan then decides that she's going to have sex with Greg. Of course, it's the natural progression. You hate the motherfucker. Now you have to have sex with him. Romero's point with this wasn't just to make a film about witchcraft. He wanted to make a feminist film. Uh, and that's the irony of it having been marketed and published as a, as a porno. He wanted to make a feminist film. And we see Joan trying to exercise some control and, I guess, find a lover of her own. And what she's forced to deal with is she finds a handsome guy and he's a smug jerk. That's what she's forced to endure. And if she wants to get what she wants out of this. Yeah, it's a hate fuck. It absolutely <laughs> is a hate fuck. I get it, Joan. 
I have wanted to hurt someone with my genitals so many times. Yeah, right. Steal their essence. Yeah. <laughs> so Joan and Greg begin an affair. It's it's a rocky start because the guy's just he's a he's just a pissant dick the whole time. Joan is trying to actually flirt with the guy and he's just not getting it. He's the kind of guy who tries to force her body to say things four or five, six times. And, and obviously for his own reassurance is what I take from that. But that's just how it, that's just how it goes. Joan gets further into her exploration of witchcraft. Again, like all of these, all of these parallels with the Joan and her travels uh, are things I've seen people go through when they're stepping into witchcraft. There's something I want to touch on here uh, when she is in the desire phase uh, regarding Greg. She uses witchcraft to try to call him there. And then finally, it is made clear that you're going to have to take direct action on this, which does happen in witchcraft. Sometimes the best way to getting your results is just to do them. That's why I don't do much witchcraft myself, because I can just do the thing sometimes uh that's that's also what is touched on when she was meeting with the witch that you can't just do this for dumb reasons this was her first spell wasn't it was trying to get greg to come by the house yes and it didn't work so she sat there two o'clock in the morning and finally she just calls the guy up and says hey why don't you come over but afterwards you she ends up having a conversation with the witch and the witch warns her you want to be careful with this you don't want to abuse it you should be appropriately respectfully afraid of going too far with some of this yeah. After that, you don't see Joan using it for f- such frivolous things like that anymore. Yeah, um, she she does do some things that we would consider now not exactly appropriate in magic. She does use sex magic. I'm not going to say that the guy wasn't informed that that was occurring because ritual objects were being used and laid out in his presence. So... I'm not going to say silence is uh, is confirmation, but he knew what was up. He just didn't believe in what was going on. And uh, I don't know. I feel kind of scuzzy about it. But at the same time, it was like, yeah, we're going to have sex during a magic ritual. And his response to it was actually anger about the whole thing, that it was stupid and it was unnecessary. And then he grabs her, pins her down and takes her. Yes, he initiates. Like it was, you know, yeah. He initiates violently. Aggressively. He grabbed her and threw her down. But she's got a whole foot on the guy. So. Yeah. Oh, well, for sure. Yeah. She, she's, she's, <laughs> def, she's definitely the bigger person in the room. He was, he was like, he was like, he was like a sexy little midget. I, I, I'm not going to say she was into it, but she did call him over. She did have that intent. It, it's just a gross kind of scene. There's just, it just doesn't pass our morals today, but it was a seventies. So maybe this was liberatory worth noting that she used that, that act and that ceremony to invoke a feminine presence. Is it what we say that you can, and you have to know that's what she's doing to know that's what she's doing. And I thought that was so subtle and hilarious. Her familiar shows up at the same time that this is going on. Uh, She is, um, calling forth a spirit named Virago. If you know what it means, you know what it means. Um, it's actually successful. Uh, the cat that shows up as her familiar is not Virago. That's just like a little subtle hint of the end of this movie, uh, which also calls back to the conversation with Shirley, but I'll hold off on that. And there was a historical context surrounding witchcraft and things feminine at the time with, you, with, with uh, Jerry Falwell. Wasn't it? Oh, no. Actually, I went and looked in on that, and he says that 20 years later. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) It's really interesting. So this movie plays out like uh, a rebuttal to the Jerry Falwell accusation that feminism will make women uh, leave their families, kill their children, and practice witchcraft and uh, become socialists, which is kind of how this movie plays out. But he doesn't say that for another 20 years. Maybe after he saw this film. Maybe after he saw this film. <laughs> after the this ritual, Joan kind of calls it quits with this Greg guy. She's had enough of his shit. He's more trouble than he's worth. It's played out. And all this is happening while her husband's been out of town. And when he does, he does step in and out. But he's he's been gone during all this. And she's just having a, a brief affair, I guess, to amuse herself. Maybe to, to try and get some control back in her life. And she gets that. 
Oh, this was a rebuttal to another popular movie. This is a rebuttal to the intro. Well, one of the early scenes in Shaft. In Shaft, he is implied to have had sex with this woman and tells her, you got to go home. (laughs) This is... Definitely oh, oh, a rebuttal to that. You're, yeah, he does one of those. And in this movie, she says, I don't want to see you again. It's These are definitely connected somehow. I'm pretty sure that's a rebuttal to Shaft. Again, like flipping the tables and making a film that more with more of a feminine view mm-hmm. where the power dynamic flips. And you see this with Joan entirely in the film where she start, when it starts off, she's just completely helpless in, in her own life and kept at home like a doll. When she begins to change all that herself, she's she's the one who does that. She's the one who realizes that if something's going to change, she's going to have to do it. And she makes the changes and she gets some agency over her own life, which I think is where witchcraft comes in for a lot of people. It is mostly about asserting agency over your life, Uh, especially in. I want to step carefully into this one, especially in regards to Catholicism, where it's so structured the rules are so they're, they're, they're so in, ingrained in people's lives. Uh, her husband also practicing Catholic, just because he has to. Just just has to. Where when you step into witchcraft, and so much of it has an ebb and flow to it, comparatively. Yeah, you're paying attention to the sky. You're paying attention to the way the plants are growing. You're you're moving with the time. And you and you move with it rather than it telling you how to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I can see the appeal there. So she dismissed Greg and the subtext to this, uh, it's mentioned briefly at the beginning is that her husband uh, has gone on a trip and uh, you have all these dreams of a home invasion and they keep ramping up and she is planning her, her subconscious is tuning in to this home invasion that she keeps dreaming about the whole time her husband's out of town. In that process, he comes home a day early, unannounced, and she had already chained the door. So now the dream is playing out in real life. And she'd had that dream that night. And she... Very vividly, like the the worst case of the dream so far. And she does exactly what she did in the final dream. She goes and takes a shotgun... And blasts her husband. He comes to the door right after being dropped off by a co-worker who had to convince him, you've made enough money for the company. Just take a day off. Spend some time with your wife. And Jack, and for the first time, Jack's like, you know what? Maybe you're right. And he goes to the door and has trouble with the key and his wife shoots him through the window. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, there's this discussion of the police officers are like, well, what do you make of it? She thought the it was woman a prowler. Was, she thought it was a prowler. What do you expect? She's a woman. And their conversation about this is very hilarious and very on point. And very misogynistic. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Like, they get it all from us in the end. These women, man, they'll, they'll, they'll take your very life and walk away with everything, which is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they're not wrong. They're not wrong, but <laughs> they're not wrong in the context of the time because the laws are structured a little bit different and by the way, Pennsylvania is still an alimony state Bam. and it will get you either way. It doesn't matter if you're the man or the woman in the relationship. We've seen this play out. This is an alimony state. And if they file for alimony, you're paying it. Pennsylvania, preying on everybody. <laughs> it, it's just ridiculous. It's a weird place. It's not even a state. It's a commonwealth. They, they refuse to be a state. But um. After that, there is a meeting of the women and uh, Shirley's there and they're talking. And um, earlier, Shirley had gotten a tarot reading about a dark haired woman that took her boyfriend or husband. It was the meaning was vague and Shirley wasn't quite sure what to make of it at the time. But she had an idea because when she gets drunk, she goes on and on about how she's losing everything. But this woman shows up and flirts with Joan. It is implied at that point because the spirit that they were trying, she was trying to summon was named Virago. 
she's gonna fuck this man's girlfriend. Yeah. So Joan lets out just a very subtle smile creeps on her face, and the credits start to roll again. <laughs> To the hot tune of Donovan's Season of the Witch, which is the only thing that was exploited in this film, once again. <laughs> and so you see that the, the spell actually worked. Yeah. In, in fact, all the spells that Joan cast in the film actually worked. And so even the first spell where she was trying to get Greg to come over to the house. Technically works. Technically worked because maybe the spell is what got her the nerve to call the guy in the first place. Yeah. That's a very fun thing you don't notice till the film is over. That everything that she does as far as witchcraft goes in the film actually worked out for her it actually it all came to fruition in the end the prophetic dream everything all these all these powers all these abilities joan was discovering along the way all of the things that joan was coming into as far as witchcraft goes uh, it all it all it all worked out for her she was able to use witchcraft to completely change her life to move it forward in the end she ended up with a daughter who had grown up and left the house and her husband who died and now she owned the house and she got you know it's it's a similar insurance policy uh, everything is hers. Now she is completely in control of her life and completely free. Oh, yeah. Back then, people were insured to the gills. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about how witchcraft was, I'm going to say, very respectfully handled in this 1973 leading into the Satanic Panic movie. Yeah. Um, I think George Romero... Uh, despite the fact that he leaves his wife at the end of this movie for one of the production assistants, um, he actually handles this very well. And um, I don't know which strain of witchcraft they're using because eclectic does exist at this point in time, but it's definitely a spinoff of Gardnerian. Uh, And coming off of just having done a documentary about this or a documentary film of some type, uh, for PBS, he he must have he must have had contacts. He must have retained some phone numbers of people he could call and ask questions about to get an accurate uh, consultation on these things. I know one of the legends of uh, witchcraft lives right over the border, over in uh, West Virginia. Okay, so that actually is in his pocket. So that's sixty miles outside of town, just about. Right, so not very far at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly a phone call away. Yeah. What do you think of the uh, ceramic bull that keeps showing up? <sighs> there is definitely focus on the ceramic bull, and I'm not quite sure I understand it unless unless he knows more about Minoan culture than I do. Well, or at the time anyone did, for that matter. Uh, Minoans were uh, matriarchy and... They don't want to talk about this very much in teaching you the history of it, but it's one of the few places where you have in the remaining art, very high level women and priestesses uh, being displayed just on equal with all the men that they display. And I kind of want to say because of the way that that bull is painted, he was probably looking into that. I I actually came away from this very suspicious uh, about how deeply into this Romero got and whether or not this was as an autobiographical picture as much as anything else. No, 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 not Romero. No, he he approaches it with respect and with insider knowledge, but he is not a practicing um, anything from what I can tell. Well, then that makes the writing superb. Mm hmm. It's so it's so dead on. If if you've ever experienced this yourself and you watch the film, you're going to feel a real connection to the character. You're going to you're going to understand everything they're going through and what, what they're experiencing with exploration of witchcraft and learning about it and the education and the getting into the practice. Yeah. Which I want to, I want to say I, I don't practice, but I have been thick in it for a while, you know, for a very long time in my adult life. I was I was up to my gills in it constantly. At the time also, um, this is contemporary feminism, the points that they were trying to establish, uh, getting women to have agency. It is dated for now. You're not going to see the intersectional feminism that you would desire from such a thing, but it was 1973. And for 1973, this must have been a very powerful film. Yeah. For anybody to be seen at the time, Uh, any woman who would want to try to, take control of their life. But I also like that 
in part of this, um, she talks about how she does value her history and the stodgy uptight culture that she grew up in, that it is not something she should, she's going to completely reject just because the times are changing. She um, admits that she is her own person through this and doesn't try to necessarily change everything about herself. She's just this plus witchcraft now. Right. So she didn't go out and just start setting churches on fire. <laughs> they weren't setting churches on fire then. Not in that way anyway. <laughs> well, not in that part of the country. How do you feel about the film itself as a production? Was it enjoyable? We watched two different edits of this. We did. Okay, so we watched the, I believe it was the um, theater release on Shudder. And Shudder's doing really good at cataloging old movies uh, and shit movies. I mean, the ginger dead man, yes. for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the preferred cuts. The theatrical cut is typically the preferred cut. Yeah. What we have, some of the stuff that was cut out of it uh, when we watched the second version was interesting. There was a touch on her upper middle classness because she has a maid. Uh, there, there was some interesting things that I don't know if he meant to do it, but he touches on how she does come from a privileged position and still feels kind of like shit and kind of trapped. I've met those women too. And alcohol is the vice (laughs) going down to the country club, watching everyone's wife get shitty. Yes. But as far as the movie production goes, you know, he, he works with what he got. He has a best I can tell cheap film they try to light the places, but because they are in houses, they're they're actually in houses. Um, you can't get the lighting completely right. Oh, the, the some of the lighting's not great. Some of the shadows are way too hard. You can tell it's just single light source, and they're just trying to blast as much light as they can. Because these old film cameras, depending on the type of lens you had, you would have to have a lot of light. And the migraine water, uh, the migraine wallpaper. Oh. So it's hard to say if those colors were actually those colors. I think they were, to be perfectly honest, from what I can recall from the bad houses I've seen in my childhood. Those colors are probably spot on. Oh, I'm sure this is and this is a time when DuPont was changing people's lives with bright, vivid colors that weren't available on the, on the commercial market before. Yeah, uh, it's, it's fun in that regard. So uh, would you recommend watching this film? I give this... Oh, yeah, four out of five ceramic bulls for sure. <laughs> I want that stupid looking bull. For a cult representation, I would also give it four out of five. Yeah, this was this, um, this was a good one. This was very fair to the subject matter. Uh, as a movie itself, probably a six or seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. The magic that she is doing in this is functional. You can do this. And if you concentrate well enough, it will work. This is on par with writing on a bay leaf. Um, You're not going to expect it to work, but it does. All right, then. Yep. Occulta is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. My name is Flood, and I am the host of XV Planets, a bi-weekly podcast of the odd and unusual. 
The Core of XV Planets is a documentary-style exploration into paranormal investigations that I and my ever-evolving group of magical misfits conduct. We take a look at the history, the mystery, then go see it for ourselves, and then we bring that experience, and on occasion, that evidence, to your ears. Alongside the investigations, you'll find a treasure trove of other content, like interviews with authors, art historians, mediums, UFO researchers, cryptid hunters, fellow paranormal investigators, as well as deep dives into the arts, exploring topics like the killing joke frontman Jazz Coleman's magical practices, and how that propelled the band forward, and whether or not David Lynch was really conducting occult rituals through Twin Peaks' The Return. So follow XV Planets today and get caught up on the journey, because I can promise you, it only gets stranger from here. I'll see you on the fifth plane. Hey there, Luxa here, host of Lux Cult, a podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and also discuss a variety of occult topics. Exploring the intersection of science, magic, art, and philosophy through the lens of chaos, it's occultism for everyone. Luxa Cult features interviews with badass authors, artists, and magicians of all walks and experience levels as well as audiomantic nonsense, cut-up poetry, bibliomancy breaks, and so much more. Don't miss the special two-part episode where Dave and I talk about his path of druidry and go into some of the botany of the plants represented by the Oum alphabet. Also, hear Dave read a guided meditation for the Green Mushroom Project, which is a large-scale group working focused on building connection and regaining ground that you can be a part of. You can hear Lexicall on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in and join us for the ride. Hello, Strange Seeds. This is the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. I'm your host, Britt. Join me semi-weekly as we pull off our flesh suits and dive into the primordial waters of the mystical and magical, the downright freaky, the strange and bizarre, unsettling synchronicities, and the truly terrifying. You'll leave each episode with a list of reading recommendations if you feel so inclined to research further the topics we discuss, which I encourage you to do. Connect with a growing community of eclectic minds who strive to leave a more positive, compassionate imprint on this weird world we live in. So dive on in with us, and don't be scared. The water's fine. What scares you? Ghosts. Aliens. Monsters? The occult. Conspiracies? Some of you like to be scared, and unearthing paranormalcy is for you. Some of you try everything you can to avoid it. Unearthing paranormalcy is for you. We take the topics that scare some, and we dig in to find the source, then present the history to make the paranormal a little more normal. We also throw in a bit of comedy to shed a light on some of the darkness in the world. So whether you're scared of bumps in the night, what's inside your own mind, or strange lights in the sky, we cover it all. We dig in and present all that we find and try to come up with some logical and not so logical reasons for the high strangeness happenings. Sometimes we are scared of the things we don't understand. And the more we understand, the less we fear. So find us, Unearthing Paranormalcy, on your favorite podcast app. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at UMP Normalcy. And until next time, keep digging.